It's really easy to geek out on prepping yourself and your motorcycle for an adventure. You know, you've got to get the right bike to begin with, and you got to equip it with everything you think that you may need. you got to do all the mods and make sure that you have the right jacket and pants and helmet and gloves. And just what was that recommendation for that waterproof bag to go in my top box? I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. I actually enjoy the process of prepping my bike and gear, tweaking it as I go. I get a lot out of it. To me, it's part of the enjoyment as well as my due diligence so that I know that I did my best to be prepared so that if something goes wrong, you know, I've, I've done my best to prepare for something like that and able to handle it in an easier fashion, I guess. I, I also like to know that I have quality stuff when I want it or need it, but it isn't the only way. There are those that will just jump on a bike, maybe an old bike, and head off into remote areas wearing non-technical gear. And to some of them, they are as fully prepared for what is to come as what anyone else is who's went and got the right bike and done all the mods. And it works for them. So if it's possible to have these two polar opposite pre-trip approaches, one detailed, modern, thorough, and the other one, not so much. If both systems work, then could it be that part of prepping for a motorcycle trip of any kind is in our head? The power of the mind is incredible, and our perspectives and our reactions are all derived from our mindset. Our mindset. Nick Adams, for instance, is one of the latter described here, and to me, it sounds like he enjoys his trips as much as anyone does, and he's riding a tractor. His words, not mine. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Yes, Simon Austin. Ben. Simon Payne. Hey, Peterson. Yasin Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com. Uh, my name's Nick Adams. I live near Kingston, Ontario, and uh, I guess I'm retired now, but I ride motorbikes and write about it. I guess that's the thumbnail sketch. Nick, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Nice to be here. Thanks. Y you think you're retired? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I am. It, it was a sort of long drawn out process, but I am definitely retired now. Ah. I, I no, no longer do the work that I did before. And what was that, the work you did before? Uh, I worked uh, in archaeology in Ontario. Well, actually in the UK as well before I moved to Ontario. Oh, so you're but, one of those guys with that, that hat and you, you're having to figure out mysteries and, and dig things up. That's the television image for sure. The reality is uh, a lot more uh, sort of basic and prosaic than that. Um, we would get hired by uh, developing companies or engineering companies to go and check out properties in advance of the development to make sure there was nothing there of importance or significance. Mm, so it's a case by case, not like you're chasing a, a story. It's a case by case as you're hired to do. Exactly. Yeah. So what do you do with that? You, you go in and you, do you dig up? Like, how do you start looking for stuff? Uh, it depends on the nature of the terrain. Um, you know, if it's plowed fields, we would walk them looking for any evidence of human occupation. Um, if it's forest or, you know, rough ground, then I, with a 
small crew of people. We just walk along digging little holes and sifting dirt and, and looking for any shreds of, you know, tiny pieces of pottery or little flint flakes or anything like that that would lead us to assume that there was something in the area. So similar to, I guess, sort of like mining, you're drilling a hole here and a hole there and hoping to strike something that's going to give you an indication there's something going on underneath. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, once you find one or two little things, then obviously you expand the nature of the search in order to get a better picture of what's going on. And that's when things get really expensive for whoever wants to build there. Yes. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But that's not my problem. (laughs) Of course not. So you did that for a living. And I mean, still, that's that's pretty exciting. This is your own business that you did? Yes. Oh, yeah, I, w- I worked for the provincial government for a few years when I first came to Canada. And then I started my own little business. Uh, and I guess continued to do it for the last uh, 40 or so. Oh, wow. Long time. Why, why yeah. did you come to Canada originally? I was chasing a girl. I'd met a girl on a dig in England and uh, I came over here to to see if things were going to work out and and got offered the job while I was here. Ah, met a girl on a dig. This is a live girl, of course, that you met on the dig. A, a this, live girl? Well, this isn't something you've <laughs> dug up, you know. I mean, I, you know, archaeologists <laughs> talk about things in a weird way, I think, you know. like. Well, these... yeah, I did used to work in a room with thousands of dead people. Right. But, uh... <laughs> so, and then you just decided to stay because you had the job offer, and that's what lands you in Canada. That's correct, yeah. So is it better living in Canada than the U.K.? Uh, it's completely different. I mean, I miss a lot of things about the UK and and I go back from time to time. I've had a, I had a period where I would go back and rent motorbikes and ride around visiting friends and places I wanted to see again. You know, I miss the pubs, I miss the old buildings, uh, the scenery, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but Canada has its, its good points too. You, you miss the pubs. So is that the beer that you miss or is it the environment? It's a combination of both. I, I don't think you can separate the two, uh-huh. at least not in my mind. There's a, an ambience to a pub that just isn't replicated in North America. Oh, really? At, at all? I am, Well, let's put it this way. I've not come across it. Yeah. and But you're searching, though. <laughs> <laughs> From time to time. Right. <laughs> now, for, you mentioned motorcycles there. You, did you start riding in the UK originally? Yeah, I have my... Uh, uh, as soon as I could get a, a license, I had a license of 16 and a whole series of uh, small and clunky and dirt cheap motorbikes and scooters, most of which sort of were unidirectional. You know, I'd, I'd ride somewhere and then have to push it back or get rescued by my dad. <laughs> and and was the idea of riding when you started out, the um, romanticism, uh, was that involved with, with riding a motorcycle or was it just because it was a cheap trans- piece of transportation? A little bit of both, but I, I remember very strongly, actually two things really inspired me. One was I was hiking in Wales and I was up on the side of one of the mountains and I heard uh, a British single cylinder bike, I think it might have been a, an AJS 500, rolling along the valley bottom road. And it just sounded so magnificent, and the guy looked just so cool. I thought, oh, yeah, I like that. Oh, yeah, and well, that's the romanticism of it, isn't it? The, the, the freedom look. Yeah, and, and then when I, I had an old Lambretta LD, uh, uh, from which all the bodywork had been stri- stripped off, and I remember riding a, on one of the higher roads in the Cotswolds, and you know it was just sort of the wind and the, the sun and the feeling of being riding along on the top of the world. Uh, it was just very inspiring. And I guess that sort of stayed with me ever since. Mm. And when you came to Canada, did you get into riding? You know, Because you came to Ontario, Canada, which has winter for uh, 10, 11 months of the year. And you've got about 30 days of riding time, tongue in cheek, of course. Um, did you get right into riding again when you came to Canada? No, not at all. I, I was living in Northern Ontario, in Sault Ste. Marie. And I looked around and I saw a few bikes on the roads, but mostly they just looked like, mm, let's put it this way. At that time, in the late 70s, uh, the motorcycling world in North America didn't appeal to me. Mm. So I basically forgot about it for, well, until my kids were grown, like so many other people. Right. Yeah, no, that is a, a common theme, isn't it? But what gets you back on the on a motorcycle? 
a friend of mine, Doug, who'd worked with me for years, turned up on his Honda CB350 and insisted I took it for a spin. And I literally went up the road, through the gears, stopped, turned around, came back, right, I'm getting a bike. <laughs> and, and, and literally that afternoon, I'd cruised uh, you know, the online ads and found my 1972 Motoguzzi Eldorado. And we were on the road riding, driving for 300 miles to pick up the bike. And what year was this? Uh, 2008, I think, so, or 2007. So this is quite an old bike. It's a, yeah, it's, well, it's what, 51 years old now. You couldn't find a newer bike? I wasn't interested in finding a newer bike. It was, I, when I looked at the ad, I remembered seeing or reading, um, uh, contemporary uh, road tests and thinking what a magnificent piece of, of machinery it was. It looked like it was sculpted out of solid metal. And it just appealed to me. I, I didn't think of it as an old bike. I just thought of it as a bike that appealed to me. Had you had Moto Guzzi's before? No, I hadn't. They were always too far too expensive and uh, sort of out of my league at the time. So talk about this Moto Guzzi you got. I believe it's an Eldorado, is it? That's correct, yeah. It's, uh, well, when I bought it, it had uh, 35,000 miles or so on it. Um, the guy that had owned it had used it to drag a, a travel trailer all around the states, oh. but it was in it was in pretty good shape. Uh, it took a little bit of you know carb cleaning and such like to get it rolling, and I've been riding it ever since. So, for those who don't know Motoguzzi, can you describe the the layout of the bike and and how like as as far as the technology of the engine goes? It's a big old touring bike. Uh, I guess it could you could sort of the closest correlative would be um you know one of the harley cruisers uh, from that period from the you know 70s mm -hmm. uh, it's uh v-twin uh, mine's an 850 it's a transverse engine so like most motor good see twin cylinder bikes the cylinders stick outside it's mm -hmm. shaft drive five speed gears um very basic suspension front and back just a big lazy old touring bike with points for ignition. Oh, points and carbs. Yeah. Wonderful stuff. Mm -hmm. So did you ride this bike long before you upgraded to a, uh, I'm using that word upgraded, but <laughs> to a more modern bike? I, I still, it's still my bike of choice for long distance travel. So what is it about a 1972 Moto Guzzi motorcycle with point ignition and carburetors that gets you riding it for long distance travel in the North? It's, um, there's so few things that can go wrong that can't be fixed at the side of the road that I have a great deal of confidence in it. You know, mm. you know, short of a massive mechanical catastrophe, which is highly sure. unlikely to happen because they're built like tractors. Um, you know, yeah, the points get dirty sometimes and need cleaning and the carbs may get out of tune a little bit, but nothing that a few minutes with a, you know, a couple of, 10 millimeter and 11 millimeter wrenches can't fix in a big hurry. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't all that long ago before, you know, when that was in cars, when I was a kid, the cars had point ignition and it was the type of thing where if you broke down on the side of the road, there was always someone who could come and help you if you didn't know how to do it yourself, figure out what the issue was. And you could almost always get it, get it going again. Like you say, I mean, it's the type of thing you'd, you'd fix it. You'd figure out what the issue was and, and off you go again. So it makes sense to use that style bike for travel, but it's it's um, kind of labor intensive, though, isn't it? Uh, not really. I mean, on a five thousand mile trip, I may have to, I may have to do something, may have to tighten a bolt or two or something like that. But it's it's rare that there's any kind of show stopping event. In fact, um, in all the travels I've done on it, and it's well over one hundred and thirty thousand miles now, oh, wow. uh, it's it's never it's never failed to get me home. So it's not like your scooters when you, that you started out with in the UK. <laughs> this one is actually a two-way ride on your motorcycle. Yes, yes, unfortunately. <laughs> it doesn't break down while you're out, or it's just that you're always able to fix it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, there have been a couple of occasions on my most recent trip um, up to northern Quebec and then across Labrador. There were a couple of occasions when it didn't really want to start first thing in the morning when it was, well, it was below freezing. 
Um, and it took a while for the thing to sort of lurch into life. Um, you know, I had to do a little bit of cleaning of plugs and points and that kind of thing to get it going. But once it's rolling, it just keeps going. Mm. And and it, it's a 1972. It's an older bike. It's it's yes, it's simple and you can fix it. But that can't be the only reason that you ride it. No, I love it. I I I've never ridden a motorcycle that gave me quite as much pleasure because. You know, it'll roll along on the on the four lane highway at uh, you know a decent highway speed. I'm not the fastest thing on the road by any means. The traffic, you know, I'm quite happy for the traffic to go rolling by, but it'll it'll roll along at 65, 70 miles an hour all day. Uh, and the only reason I have to stop is just to put more fuel in it and keep going. It's it's sufficiently comfortable that it's never a problem. Um, it handles well enough. It's easy to handle on gravel back roads. Um, I never have any concerns about, well, about anything really. It just gets the job done. And riding with your buddy who, who has, uh, I think you said DR650. Um, was, was that what it was? DR, no, not a DR650. Suzuki. Sorry. It's, uh, he had the Suzuki. Do, do you find that there's any difference between that? Like, is he waiting for you? Um, there have been times, I, I usually ride alone, but there have been a couple of times when I've done longer trips with friends. And on, I think the occasion that you're thinking about, we we basically would say, um, let's meet up at the end of the day, or we'd meet up for lunch somewhere, and we'd have a, a place that we'd encounter together. And he might arrive, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes ahead of me, but there's rarely any any difference. Right, it's not like you're riding an old dog, and 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 the thing is, what I guess what you get from this is the the real pleasure in the fact that it's this old bike. It's the, the Moto Guzzi. There's so you're getting the ride of a motorcycle, but then you're also getting the that feeling of having something. I, I guess there's a bit of um, you know nostalgia there with it. Uh, a little bit, and I mean, I I I get a kick out of of riding an old bike when everybody else is zooming by on on modern bikes. Um, and, you know, I can park it next to a row of shiny Harleys and the only bike that people look at is the Eldorado, <laughs> which, yeah. which gives me a sort of pompous kind of pleasure. Right. But the reality is, you know, if you if I'm on a longer trip, let's say, I don't know, heading back from Newfoundland to, to Ontario, I don't care what you're riding, you're not going to beat me by more than about 10 minutes because mm. I can, you know, I just plug along at, at a decent speed and you know, think, I see this often on the highway, actually. I'll see cars go racing by, and then I'll see them again three, four, five times during the course of a trip. Mm -hmm. You know, people stop, they take breaks, they get food, they get gas. I just plug along. So when you, you're saying um, this is your, your bike that you use for all of your adventures, so if somebody was to ask you what's the, the perfect adventure motorcycle for you, you would say... For me, that I wouldn't recommend it for anybody else. I mean, it's it's just I've used the term before that I I feel like a sort of centaur. You know, when I get when I'm on the bike and settled in during a long ride, I don't really even feel any distinction between me and the bike. It's like we're one entity. Oh, that's that's really neat. Now, when you talk about adventures, uh, talk about your adventures. What, what sort of things do you do with your motorcycle? Oh, I guess uh, when I started doing longer rides in, in Canada, one of the first I did was um, up to Gaspé, uh, specifically do some hiking up in the uh, Chicchoc Mountains. And that was kind of fun. But uh, on the way back, at that point, um, I should preface this by saying the, the previous owner had done some weird stuff with the oil system and had uh, grafted on an external oil cooler a filter, I beg your pardon. But he'd grafted it on with um, a copper water pipe, you know, domestic mm. copper water pipe. And on the way back, one of the solder joints gave way, so I ended up with a bit of a wet foot. Oh, like you're talking like like a half-inch copper pipe. Exactly, yeah. Is this like a homemade um, oh, filter? totally homemade filter. Well, the filter was, the filter would screw into a, a bought mount, Oh, I see. You just made uh, the, the piping for it. The connections with the piping, yeah. Right, yeah. Something you don't see very often on a motorcycle, but kind of suitable, I think, for a 72 Moto Guzzi. <laughs> well, 
But once I got that sorted, um, the next time I went up to the Labrador city a couple of times and then across, uh, across the Trans Labrador Highway before it was paved and basically had no troubles at all. Where else? Uh, I guess 2018, I think it was, I rode over to the Yukon and up the Dempster Highway, uh, up to the Arctic Circle and just up to Fort McPherson. And then last year, was it last year? Yeah, last year I went across to the Pacific Ocean on Vancouver Island, through the mountains, more or less to see the mountains and visit some friends on the way, that kind of thing. I, I do a lot of exploring of back roads too in, in eastern Ontario and, and the adjacent parts of Quebec. So most of my, most of my longer rides have been in Canada. You've written like a, a bunch of books uh, about your adventures that you do. What, what do you do? You, do you do an adventure, do a ride somewhere, a big ride, and then decide to sit down and write a book about it? That's pretty much it. I, I usually like to include um, a few different trips or uh, adventures, if you like to call them that. Um, because it's uh, often it's about, it's not so much about the exciting uh, things that happen along the way. It's about the people. It's about the scenery. It's about the wildlife that you see. It's about how you're feeling about the motorbike. You know, the little things that go wrong for sure, how you fix them. Uh, the people that stop that offer you help when you're just trying to have a pee by the side of the road, <laughs> you know, <laughs> those are the things that, uh, that are entertaining. We're going to take a quick break while I tell you about a couple of things, two things, as a matter of fact, when we come back, we have a lot more fun. Stay with us. Every time we hear about Africa on this show, we hear about incredible landscapes, diverse culture. It's often referred to as the ultimate adventure motorcycle trip. Well, Renadian Adventures specializes in adventure motorcycle trips into Africa. Renadian Adventures is owned by Rene Cormier, and Rene did his own round-the-world trip on $25 a day. He's the author of University of Gravel Roads, a great book about an incredible adventure that chronicles his trip. Rene says that Africa is safe to travel because on their trips, they mainly ride in rural areas and stay in upscale lodges at night. They've got new BMWs to rent and a full-time Renadian crew based in Cape Town to help with planning, etc., the routes can either be paved or with some gravel, and they've got a backup chase vehicle, and that's for anything they need along the way that they've got to carry with them. But it's also a place for pillions that don't want to ride, yet still want to see the sights that their partner's seeing. So Renee says they get pillions every year that want to ride in the van, and that's fine because that's what it's for. And for you as a rider, if you have an issue, that's what the van is there for. I mean, if you had some reason that you wanted to not ride for that day. Renee says that Renadian Adventures Africa trips are the most vacation-y of their guided tours. They're nice adventures during the day with lots of comfort at night. And that riders that are new to international touring will find Africa as a great starting destination. Renadian.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Renadian.com. The Atlas Throttle Lock is not only a thing of beauty, but a marvel of engineering. It's designed by a rider, just like you, David Winters, David and Heidi Winters, from their round-the-world trip that they did on their KTM. This is a tiny little device that clamps onto your handlebar in seconds, yet transforms your bike and your comfort level. It's designed like a Swiss watch, finely crafted from metal with two buttons on it, one for engage, the other for disengage, and the tactile feedback from them is perfect. So when I press those buttons, I don't need to look. I can feel what I'm doing. Pressing engage holds my throttle at the position I set it at, and then I just twist to add more or less throttle, and it holds the new position. That allows my hand time to relax and uncramp, and with that, my wrist, my forearm, my upper arm, even my shoulder feels better with the Atlas Throttle Lock. And another bonus is it's easy to move from one bike to another, so if you're selling your bike, you don't have to let it go with it. 
atlasthrottlelock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. atlasthrottlelock.com. So when you're on one of these, and the thing is that what I found interesting about this is that you have done all these all in Canada, a lot of them in just one province, which is really neat because you're finding adventures that are worthy enough to even write stories about right close to home. Because often when we talk about adventure, especially on this show, we talk about international adventure, people going from you know one country to another country and multiple countries over, over a long period of time. But there's so much available close to your home if you just look for it. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I did a lot of um, a, a lot of traveling in foreign countries when I was in my uh, early twenties, and I guess I I suppose I've lost the appetite for it. I'd rather explore in detail um, uh, than I would, you know, just sort of barrel across the world. Mm-hmm. When you're when you're planning an adventure, what what do you look for, and how do you plan it? I look for places that I haven't been before, or that are going to provide some interesting scenery or, or, you know, roads that I haven't in- investigated, roads that have some sort of particular charm. Um, and maybe, and actually, really, if I'm brutally honest, I just like being on the bike all day. Uh, <laughs> it, it, you know, as long as I'm not on a four-lane highway, if, um, if I'm just moving somewhere on the bike, I'm pretty much happy most of the time. So is it more open-ended? Do you just sort of hit the road and have a rough idea of where you're going and then bounce around at that point? I usually have a destination in mind. Um, like a daily destination or a, a trip destination? A trip destination. Mm-hmm. Like the the most recent long trip, the, the Northern Quebec, Labrador, Newfoundland trip. I had three things that I wanted to do. The first was I wanted to go up to the shores of James Bay, which is as far as you can go by road in uh, Quebec. I've been there, been up there before on other bikes as well. I just wanted to sort of do that, see what it looked like in well, late May, early June. And then across to uh, Labrador, north of uh, Goose Bay, Happy Valley Goose Bay, this place called Northwest River, which is, again, as far as you can go by road in that part of eastern Canada. So I just, you know, basically looking at the ends of roads. And the third one was following the the coastal road at Labrador down as far as it goes. It actually goes back into Quebec and then stops, literally stops, and doesn't pick up again for another something like 400 kilometers in uh, in eastern Quebec along the uh, the St. Lawrence River. You've said you, you fell in love with the north, and I'm assuming you mean the Ontario north. What is it about it that draws you? Well, as you can imagine, coming from the UK, um, everything about it was completely different. And I was lucky that when I started working for the government as an archaeologist, basically I was let loose in Northern Ontario with a canoe and uh, a a partner exploring and recording archaeological sites. So I got used to that vast open wilderness of of lakes and trees and gravel roads and uh, I still like to go up there and enjoy that environment. You got paid to paddle a canoe and explore? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, those were the days. <laughs> Why would you ever leave that job? <laughs> uh, well, you know, unfortunately things changed and uh, uh, the the way the government operated changed. It became less about providing service and more about providing uh <laughs> Well, it's, it, they started managing archaeologists rather than managing archaeological resources. Oh, I so uh, uh, your typical government the, stuff. Y- yes, exactly. <laughs> right. I've only spoken to one other person that, that I've come across that's actually worked for the government paddling a canoe. I think that's uh, pretty neat. It's uh, it's like being paid to ride your motorcycle, for instance. Y- yeah. The well, same. that's the, that's the way I look at my current endeavors of chucking out little books from time to time and the audio books. Um, I go on trips. I enjoy them. I write about them. Other people seem to enjoy them too. That's all good. How do you experience the the wilderness that you're going to see, or these places that you're going to see? Like, what do you do to experience it? Uh, I don't think I do anything special. I mean, I, I I camp some of the time. I as I've got older, I've become much more of a credit card camper with uh, 
stopping at motels whenever <laughs> the opportunity arises or I'm feeling particularly lazy or weak. Um, but I, I get a thrill from, you know, throwing a tent up somewhere in the middle of the bush and, and uh, there's always that, especially coming from the UK where we have no wildlife that's, you know, can possibly endanger your life. There's always that little piquancy of, of knowing that, yes, there are bears and moose and other big animals in these woods. Mm -hmm. And you're lying there in your tent and you hear some little twig crack. And the reality is it's a mouse or a squirrel. <laughs> but your mind always goes <laughs> to the worst scenario. It's so true. And, and I use a hammock most of the time for myself. And uh, yeah, I always feel like I'm a taco <laughs> sitting there, you know, <laughs> waiting for a bear to come. And of course, your butt's down the lowest, right? That's going to be the first thing that attracts attention. So yeah, yeah. I can but just make sure you don't have any salami in there with you. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> you definitely don't want to do that. <laughs> well, what are some of the adventures you've had? I mean, were things have maybe hadn't turned out exactly as you'd planned? Ah, oh, let me think. I guess on the first trip, um, on the unpaved Trans-Labrador Highway, by the time I got to, well, I guess it started to happen on the way. The generator on that bike sits between the cylinders and is no, the cradle that it sits in is notoriously prone to coming loose. So indeed, the generator did come loose. So I had to have it strapped. I had to strap it down with bungee cords and such like to uh, hold it together. Mm -hmm. And actually, while I was waiting for the ferry in Port of Basque, I basically stripped the whole bike down and, and sort of reorganized and rejigged the uh, the generator mounts and put it all back together before I got back on the ferry. So you've got to be um, somewhat mechanically inclined to ride your Motoguzzi. I wish I could say that I was mechanically inclined, but I'm I'm a real fumble fingers. Oh. But <laughs> I, so, so then, okay, let me rephrase that. Then you've got to be at least willing to try. Yes, exactly. Mm. That's, a, that's a good way of describing it. I always make sure I take enough tools. Um, actually, another one of the more enjoyable little incidents uh, coming back from coming back from the Yukon, everything had been going swimmingly the whole way. And I was coming back through Manitoba racing a thunderstorm. And the bike just suddenly died. I thought, what the heck has gone on? And I looked around and Eventually, I found what had happened was the the coil which sits under, beneath the tank was so old that the the little brass uh, flat sided pins that you attach the wires to the one one had rotted completely off. <laughs> the you know bronze disease had, had just sort of rotted it off. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh gosh, what do I do now? Um, just at that point, as I was trying to ponder what to do, a, a guy riding a Harley turned up and asked him me if I needed any assistance. But just as he was pulling to a stop, it occurred to me that in my, I had a bag of tools, I had a bag of spare parts, you know, points and various other bits and pieces. I had an old coil off my buddy Norm's uh, BMW, one of his old airheads. Well, so, hang on a second. Hang on. You're you're riding your Moto Guzzi and you're carrying it apart from your buddy's old bike. Yep. What for? Well, the coil's a coil. You know, all it all it does is create sparks. Okay. Well, so said. it's just a a basic standard coil that you might find on any of those you know fifties and sixties and seventies. Right. So you cars. you carried it fully intending that if you needed it, that was going to be your replacement. It wasn't that just a spare part thrown in. Yes. I started no, to question I, I, your packing there for a second. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> like you're digging through and just, whoa, what is this? Oh, I forgot all about that. You know? <laughs> well, I had, I had forgotten about it. It was at the bottom of the bag and I was, you know, it just sort of occurred to me that I had it. Mm -hmm. um, so instead of wasting time taking the, the tank off and taking the coil off and replacing it with the one I had, I just uh, got some tape and strapped the coil to the side of the... Uh, the metal, um, oh, what do you call them? Trim plate or whatever on the side of the bike. Put all the leads to it, turn the key, bike started, away we went. <laughs> Rode all the way home with the coil strapped to the side of the bike. You, you got to love that. I mean, that really epitomizes your point of the old motorcycle that you can always get going. Because it was a new bike, I mean, th these things are all made to fit in, in specific spaces. Coils are on top of spark plugs a lot of times now. 
and and very specific. I mean that that is just that's priceless. It really is. Well, that whole bike is. Uh, there's a lot of stuff from old Fiat's and old Volkswagens that can be jimmied to uh, to work on that bike. Mm. But all those parts are becoming less and less common now. I mean, really less common now. Yeah, although you'd be surprised with the older Moto Guzzi's. There's such a strong. Uh, well, they they don't break basically, mm-hmm. uh, and there's such a strong uh, Guzzi network that you can get pretty much anything for them, keep them rolling. So you said they're built like tractors. They really are. Yeah. I mean, you can get yeah. a tractor, you know, that was from the, the 40s or 50s and it'll still work perfectly well. May lack a three-point hitch or something, but a three-point uh, lift, but, you know, it, it'll still work and pull and everything. It's it's incredible. So if it's anything yeah. like that, that's great. But I, so you mentioned that you're, you're not mechanically inclined, that you sort of fumble around. So to figure this stuff out, this takes some time to find a broken wire on a coil. So what? how exactly do you go about troubleshooting your, your problems? I guess I just looked. I, you know, I realized it was an electrical problem. So I just started looking around uh, to see where the problem might lay. So when you say, look, this isn't a technical thing where you've got a scope out and, you, and you've got a lead out and you're testing, you're actually looking for physical anomalies. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It yeah. is the quickest way, isn't it? Even today, even with modern bikes, the quickest thing to do is, first of all, to know your bike, know what it's supposed to look like, but then to look for things like, and I'm sure you're doing this, you're you're looking for well, obvious broken wires, things falling off, loose nuts and bolts, any, anywhere where you can see something that looks like it's changed. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't know, I do know that bike pretty well. I've, I've had the engine out multiple times. I've had the gearbox out multiple times. Um, I rewired it. There's a guy in the States called Greg Bender who produces a complete wire harness uh, for those bikes. So at one point I had the whole thing stripped down and and completely uh, renewed the wiring harness. So I knew that it wouldn't, it shouldn't have been, uh, like an old wiring problem, everybody accuses Moto Guzzi's of having terrible electrics, but you know, realistically, they don't. They're they're perfectly fine. Um, so yeah, I was looking for something that wasn't right. And you see a crack or something like that, and, and that's where you start to to follow up on. Yeah. Hey, we're going to take a fast break here. I'll tell you about something and then we're coming back with more. Stay with us. See and be seen. I just love that motto from Cyclops Adventure Sports. And when it comes to auxiliary lighting, Cyclops really has it nailed. It's no wonder because they're owned and operated by adventure riders just like you. And the other day, Daryl was telling me that, Daryl from Cyclops was telling me that Cyclops just bought skein lights and more recently, Extreme Dual Sports lights. So their massive selection of top quality lighting just got even bigger. They've got plug and play systems for tons of bikes, bikes with CAN bus systems. I mean, everything, LED headlights that are DOT approved, so much more. I love their Evo turn signal inserts or Evolution turn signal inserts. They turn your turn signals into ultra bright driving lights up front and stunning LED brake lights in the rear. Of course, they, they also work as your signals still, but the conversion really makes the bike stand out. I mean, incredibly on the road to other drivers. Also your vision up front because the the driving lights and the looks, just the general looks of what it does for your bike. Incredible. Also, they've got these two inch Aurora auxiliary lights. I mean, they've got tons of lights, but these ones are super bright yet so tiny. You can fit them on any bike. CyclopsAdventureSports.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. Your foot pegs are not just your connection to your motorcycle. Obviously, that's really important, but they're also a tool for you to control your bike. In fact, I would say arguably they're one of the most important tools when riding slow or on challenging surfaces. With a correct foot peg, you have more leverage to control your motorcycle, especially a heavy or loaded adventure bike. And the correct foot peg is one that is designed professionally for adventure riding, specifically. It's manufactured as tough as nails maybe tougher than nails, and, and is designed in a way that suits your riding style. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs, just like I described there, that are designed specifically for your style of riding. They use cast certified 17-4 stainless steel and a certified heat treating process. They're made in the USA and they're warranted for life. 
imsproducts.com is their website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, imsproducts.com. So as far as the, the bike prep before you go, because this is a big deal for adventure riders, a lot of time and money is spent prepping the perfect bike, getting the gear on there. <laughs> You're laughing already. Getting the gear on there, getting your skid place in, and checking the internet to find out what the best possible products, what mods should I do to this bike, to these adventures? Because these adventures you're doing that you've done that you've written about are all adventures that people do on adventure motorcycles, you know, that are, are really sort of on steroids compared to your motorcycle that you're riding. So as far as bike prep goes, how much time does it take you to prep and how much are you putting into it? I sling the panniers over the back, uh, throw my tools in the back and basically set off. <laughs> it, re it really flies in the face of a, of a lot of thought process when it comes to adventure motorcycling. Now, okay, how do you get away with that? Is it because the thing is easy to fix? Yes, I, I think it is. It's because it's so robust and simple. Mm -hmm. um, and as I say, even though I don't have any great uh, mechanical knowledge, I do know enough about that particular bike to be able to cope with it on the road. Yeah, and you've never had a breakdown with it, like like a, a Motoguzzi breakdown that, that sort of canceled your trip or delayed you tremendously or anything? No, no. I mean, I've, I've had problems close to home. Um, I mean, literally... Uh, 20 yards from my driveway, uh, the gearbox locked up one time and I, I ended up having to get a, a replacement gearbox mm. just, just through eBay. That was a, a simple thing. And then, uh, one of the Gucci gurus in Quebec, uh, checked it out for me and installed it. Well, actually, no, I installed it, but he made sure that it was a good gearbox. What was wrong with the other one? Uh, it had lo I had locked up. I don't know. It must have been a bearing out of position or something like that. Oh, you never broke it open and, and to see what, what happened? Uh, he did. I I can't rem remember the story. But, oh, I uh, see. But yeah, it was, it was toast anyway. But other than that, you're jumping on this bike time after time again, riding off to distant places. Because, you know, and I know I'm sort of harping on this point. And for you that rides this bike all the time, you, you, you think nothing of it. You're thinking, what is the big deal? But for others that are listening... You know, they spend so much time worrying about their, their bike and, and is it ready to go on this long trip, et cetera. And you're just jumping on this bike and going. I mean, how does that work? Uh, I suppose I have a, a, a fair amount of confidence in other people, too. I know that if I break down somewhere in the middle of nowhere, um, I've always got my tent and my sleeping bag. Somebody's going to be along, you know, mm -hmm. if, it, if it comes to it. Uh, I, on a different bike, another Moto Guzzi, but a 500 single that I had for a while. I did have uh, what was a trip-stopping event, or at least for me, on the North Road in northern Quebec when I, uh, I had a series of punctures, not realizing that I had uh, a tiny little staple sticking out of the sidewall of the, the tire into, the, into uh, the carcass. Into the tube. So I put a new tube in, and of course, within 20 miles, that was toast as well. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a patch kit. And I was just trying to figure out what I was going to do. I ended up meeting some people from a Hydro-Quebec uh, road crew. They were doing a survey. And the, the lady running the crew said, uh, well, I've got a satellite phone. Is there anyone you need to call? And, you know, I was thinking I could probably get the bike into somebody's pickup truck and taken to the local First Nations village, and they'd have something to help me get patch it up. But using her satellite phone, I called my buddy Norm back here in, in eastern Ontario and said, hey, Norm, I've got a, I'm, I'm stuck on the north road. And he said, right, I'll come and get you. Uh, and that was, uh, we have 1,700 kilometers each way. Wow. <laughs> wow. You got to have a, a good, good friend for that. That's a good friend, yeah. So you drove all, the, I mean, it also makes you think about like, is there not a better and faster, easier way to get it back rather than doing that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, as I say, I, I real I kicked myself afterwards because I realized I, I chickened out far too quickly. I just took the easy way out because Norm and I have ridden together on quite a few little trips and we'd always said, uh, if we're ever stuck, just call. Mm. Uh, I, so far, I haven't had to rescue him. 
but he was quite prepared to rescue me. Yeah, oh, it's neat. And there's something about that, isn't there? I mean, that, that's the great thing about motorcycle friends, you know, doing that sort of thing. It's, it's much more fun to be picked up by a motorcycle buddy than get it towed by a tow truck. <laughs> if you could find one up there. Yeah, well, that's true too. Yeah. Yes, of course. You just mentioned you've, you've ridden with your friend. Do you normally do your trip solo or do you do them with other people? Yeah, I'm almost exclusively solo. It's only once or twice that I've I've been on longer trips with anybody else. Is that on purpose? Yep. I just like being on my own. I am I I suppose I don't get too bored with my own company. Um I I find the long distance motorcycling for long days, your mind goes off on its own little adventures. Uh and I quite like that feeling. It's like I sort of describe it as moving meditation. Mm. Uh, just, you know, particularly the roads I choose to ride, there's almost never any traffic and, you know, you're just grinding along sometimes or, you know, if it's a big gravel road, yes, you've got to pay attention to uh, to what's happening under the wheels. But uh, the amount of brain power it takes to actually pilot the bike down the road is relatively small. You know, as I say, I sort of, I consider it that, you know, you, you sort of set the lizard brain at work to, uh, to keep the bike on the, on the road and the rest of your mind can go off on its own little adventures. What would another person along with you take away on a trip? I, uh, I find that, um, I, I like to stop and take pictures. I like to stop and, and, you know, fiddle with video cameras and, and sometimes just sit and listen to the birds for a while, little things like that. And if you're along with somebody else, that starts to become intrusive. And also, no two people are entirely compatible. There's always, you know, if your friend wants to go three miles an hour faster than you, or you want to you go a little faster, or, you know, there's always some compromises. Whereas if you're on your own, it's just you making all the decisions. I like that. No two people are entirely compatible. <laughs> I mean, that's very true. Uh, usually we compromise, you know, don't we, with with, uh, with having another person along for it. But a lot of people will say that, you know, having another person along for the the trip allows you to sort of, sort of share the experience. And I'm wondering if that's why you're writing books about it. Well, that's, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's certainly possible. I do like to share. Um, you know, I usually produce a clunky video of about my trips by the, you know after a few days after I get back and that I use as a way of of um reminding me of all the little details and then I start the writing and you post the video or are you just keeping this for yourself no I post a video I have a video video channel on YouTube I see Nick Nick Adams motorcycle oh go figure that makes sense easy to find yeah <laughs> They're not terribly high tech or, or professionally done, but uh, uh, people seem to like them because I don't know. I have a very sort of casual, low intensity way of <laughs> delivering them. Maybe it puts people to sleep. I don't know. <laughs> you've you mentioned about the people that you meet. Can, can, do you have some stories about people that you've met and that have been a significant um, impact on you in, on one of your trips? Gosh, uh, well, obviously the the young lady and the the group doing the the survey on the uh, North Road, they were so absolutely generous. Um, you know, I was going to be stuck there for what a day and a half until Norm turned up. They fed me. In fact, at one point, completely unbeknownst to me, one of the hydro truck workers had been back to their main um, work camp came back with a whole bag full of drinks and food and sandwiches and all that kind of stuff. You know, it seems the further you are out from what unwise people call civilization, uh, the more likely it is that people are going to go out of their way to help you. Mm. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think it's just easier. There's less, you know, when you've got fixed streaming by who's going to stop, but when, you're the, you know, the, the only vehicle on the road for the last two hours, then, you know, you're more inclined to stop to see what somebody's, you know, if they look as though they're in trouble. Mm -hmm. I often wonder if, it, if it's um, because there's no or very few people around that you sort of see things that um, connect you more, mainly that you're human, you know, and, and you sort of recognize that connection between the two of you 
more than what you will with a bunch of people around and what you said, civilized. That's true, definitely. And and one of the things about traveling alone is is that you're more open to that kind of interaction. You know, if you you're riding with a group, well, yeah, you're riding with an individual or perish the thought, a group of people. You turn up to a gas station, let's say, and and uh, you're filling up. The ch- the likelihood that you're going to your conversations are going to stay internal. You're going to be talking mm-hmm. to the people that that you're traveling with. You're going to be sharing your stories with them and such like. You're less open to the, the other people around who may be interested in where you're going and what you're doing. And 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 I guess one of the advantages of riding an old bike is that that's an immediate uh, opportunity for people to engage in conversation. Yeah, I'm wondering if your adventures would be as interesting on a modern, dare I say, more reliable bike. I don't even know if that's true, though, the way you're describing this. But let's just say that, you know, that is the case on a modern, more reliable bike. I do ride. Uh, I also have a Suzuki Cavalcade, uh, 1986. That's my modern bike mm-hmm. uh, that I that I ride on long trips. I was out in Nova Scotia on it uh, last October, and then again uh, this later in in the year. This time, I guess that was September. And again, on my own, it's fine. Uh, the bike runs long. But somehow it doesn't seem quite as adventurous to me. Do people act the same to you? Do they, do they respond the same as with the Moto Guzzi? Probably not. No, yeah. they just, you know, because it looks like an old Goldwing, people just, you know, just see it as an old, well, just a big touring bike. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not as obviously old as the, the Eldorado. But even so... Um, because you're one person on a motorcycle, uh, just about everybody feels uh, you know, empowered to come and talk to you. Mm-hmm. Are there any fears for you for traveling alone, in particular when you get into remote places? No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes, there are. Uh, I I have a deep fear of grizzly bears in, in the West mm-hmm. and the North. Um I'd be very wary of camping anywhere that wasn't, you know, didn't have the appearance of being safe. Uh, Black bear country don't really give it much of a thought. And that's it. Yeah, I'm not worried about breakdowns. I'm not worried about uh, people. Yeah, people. No, I won't. Gosh, no. No, I'm a big lad. Um, You know, I'm not a I'm not automatic victim. Mm, right. You know, um, like, I just don't understand why you're so afraid of grizzlies though. What's the deal with that? <laughs> <laughs> I can think of any number of reasons. <laughs> I did see, a, I did see a couple on, uh, on the most recent trip out, out West. Uh, but fortunately they were both occasions. They were sufficiently far away that it wasn't an issue. Yeah, they're 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 certainly large animals. They're very impressive to see up close. And of course, as you probably know already, they they can burst at incredible speeds. I think it's forty five mile an hour or something like that yeah. for for short periods. I've seen them run alongside of the road before while I'm going along the road in in remote, remote places in British Columbia. And um, it yeah, you, you do not want to mess with an animal like that, and you don't want no. to be in in the way of it. You know, wanting to run and disable you. Yeah, I did stop at the side of the road uh, to take some video of of some bison in, on the uh, Alaska Highway, mm. and I left the engine running, of course. But yeah. and, and there was there was one big bison male doing a wallow. He was sort of rolling around in a in a sand pit, and then he looked at me, and gave me the stink eye. Look, <laughs> okay, I'm going, I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> That's another big animal. I forgot about that. You, you certainly yeah. want to be well, even moose. Because you mentioned moose earlier. Moose can be dangerous in, in the rut in the, yes. in the fall. So yeah. as, as they're looking for a mate, they can be very aggressive. Yeah. I think, I think spending a lot of time in, in the canoe in Northern Ontario um, during those early years when I first moved here sort of uh, gave me a perhaps foolish sense of invulnerability. Mm. Um, what do you mean foolish? Well, I mean, the reality is things can happen. You know, you're riding along a gravel road, you misjudge something, you hit a sand trap, bang, you're down. 
And who knows when the next vehicle along is going to be? It could be ours. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one person is, you know, more immune to that than anybody else. But I like to think that I'm sufficiently cautious most of the time that uh, I'm sort of trying to manage the risks, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. You have to be more careful when you're traveling by yourself than when you're with someone else. I guess so, yes. You guess so? You do, so you don't, that doesn't come into your thought process? Because I know for me that, you know, and I, I have some wilderness guiding background, I know for me, when I'm with someone else, I will tend to try things or maybe push my luck a little bit, dare I say, and sound, you know, reckless, but push my luck a little bit more than what I, when I'm by myself, because when I'm alone, I, I realize just how vulnerable I am. Uh, I, on, on the bike, particularly, I've never been, even when I was a kid, I was not a speed person. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I did foolish things. I had a, I had a couple of Panthers, which were old British single cylinder motorbikes. And I can recall riding, well, not being able to kickstart them because I was too drunk and, and having to bump start them, right. you know, foolish, foolish stuff like that. Yeah. But, uh, speed has never been something I've been, you know, infatuated with. I'd much rather burble along at what I consider to be a safe and comfortable speed and get where I'm going. Well, I'm thinking also of even trying a road. I mean, you, you know, you're going up in Northern Ontario and you come to a road, you know, do you try it by yourself? Oh yeah. Yeah. Pretty you much always. You don't worry about it. Now, now when, when I say road, are you, are you t- thinking main roads or, or do you go off on places that may be somewhat less used or abandoned? Uh, I don't, uh, yeah, I, I don't sort of go to the ends of logging roads and that kind of thing, but I, I'll happily ride sort of minor single track uh, gravel roads that go, I don't know. I was out uh, earlier this year on uh, my Honda Pacific Coast, if you remember that wonderful beast, um, in northern Ontario on a road west of Matachuan, which it's great. It's got a number. It's a, it's got a highway number, but it goes from a basically a two lane gravel road, decent road, gradually sort of narrows down till it's little more than a single strip of gravel through the forest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I I knew where I was going to end up, and I knew I had enough gas, so why not? Just take a chance. And, you, and you're not worried at that point. I mean, you know, because there are no grizzlies there. No, no, I'm not worried. Um, and, you know, it's not that I, I don't recognize the risks. It's that I like to sort of think that I'm being as careful as I can without um, limiting my pleasure. Let's put it that way. So if something goes wrong, you come off the bike and you injure yourself or something like that, you feel you're quite prepared to deal with that and, and wait until somebody comes along. Well, I, I mean, what choice do you have? Yeah. It's just you hope it doesn't happen. No, but I mean, you can choose not to go. Like, in other words, you're getting into a remote spot and you can look at that road and say, okay, you know, I'm by myself. If something goes wrong here, I'm going to be up the creek. I won't go there. Yeah. I, I think a lot of my thinking may have changed a little bit in 2017. Um, when I had triple bypass surgery, mm. um, and you sort of, once you, well, I, I had sort of degenerative angina. Let's, <laughs> that's it's the best way I can describe it. It's, it's sort of having been fit and healthy all my life, I was suddenly falling off the map and ended up having triple bypass. But since then, you know, I've been fit and healthy again. Wow. And Perhaps it's just a case of saying, well, you know, do the things you want to do and to hell with the risks. One of your titles of the book is Do While You Still Can. Is that what it's about? Uh, that's just about getting old. Just, well, I mean, it's it's about a lot of things. It's about motorcycle trips. It's about the pleasure of riding. But um, uh, certainly the introduction is about how... Um, whether we like it or not, we are all aging, or at least my generation of people is aging. A lot of them are becoming infirm. A lot of their knees don't work properly, you know, hips and such like. So if you if you have the desire to do things, do it now. Mm. Don't wait because you can never guarantee on the, you can never guarantee the future. You know, I think as long as you have some health, some, and some desire to do things, 
then just do them. Don't, don't, there's no, there's no perfect time. You say you though, you feel like you're 23 still. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess, especially, I think you said with that, especially when you throw your leg over your bike. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. And unfortunately I can still throw my leg over the bike even when it's fully loaded. Mm. So, you know, I'm, I guess years of uh, taekwondo and karate helped and that kind of thing. But um, I'm lucky. I recognize that I'm lucky. I got patched up. I got replumbed, and I got a new lease of life. Yeah. So I'm going to make darn sure I use it to the best of my ability. You, you say about old age, and you, you said you, you wrote a book there about about getting old. What, what was the, what's the point of it? Is, is it about getting out there and doing it? Uh, I guess for me. And for those, I, what I would say is is that if you have the desire to do it, don't wait, do it. Um, there'll never be a better time. Don't and don't let little uh, inconveniences slow you down. You know, a lot of people I, I hear this on the forums all the time. People say, "Oh, it's too cold to ride," or "I put the bikes away for the winter," or you know, uh, "I didn't have a heated vest," or "Oh." Just suck it up. <laughs> you know, just, just just get out there and do it if you, if you want to do it. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're sitting on the couch. The day's going to go by, and then the next day is going to go by, and then you're not going to be able to do it. Yeah. And if you have an adventure along the way, if something goes wrong, you've got a story to come home with. Yeah, and, and things don't have to go wrong for there to be a good story. You know, every. Everything we do is a story. We, we, you know, if you go out for a, a tour on your brand new bike and absolutely nothing goes wrong, um, you've still got things to tell people about the places you've been and, and how you felt about it and, mm-hmm. and, you know, what a wonderful time you had. No, and th- that's true. And I, I totally agree. I, I feel like every time I go out to do, you know, if I'm riding my motorcycle or paddling my canoe, I feel like there's always something special from that outing that, that I come home with. There always is. It never fails. And, and I recognize it often when it happens. I think, well, that was it. And it could be as simple as spotting an animal or seeing a, a spot that I've never seen before, finding a road or something like that. But what I was referring to was the fear, you know, where people say, well, it's, it's too cold. I might be uncomfortable. Or what if I have a problem with my bike? Or what if something goes wrong? You know, that's where I'm saying you, you, if you just do it and you have that issue, something does go wrong, it's okay because it makes it part of your story. Yes. Yeah. You just have to, you just have to, I guess it's a mental headspace thing. You have to have to have your mind in the right place and, uh, and be prepared for discomfort. Sometimes riding a motorbike is, is, and can be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, mus- muscles ache, we get soaking wet, we get cold. Like on this most recent trip across Labrador, um, there was no squalls. It was, you know, probably less than three degrees Celsius much of the time. Um, if you've got good gear, great. If you've not, just put on everything you've got and keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you wear modern gear or are you wearing 1970s Moto Guzzi gear? <laughs> <laughs> I have a big, thick padded leather jacket and uh, a set of... Uh, <laughs> Harley like chaps that I that that I often wear. Um I do have other gear and I sometimes wear that. And you know when it's cold I I'll wear long underwear and and padded pants underneath the chaps and then maybe my rain suit over the top and you know I I I layer up pretty well. I see. I I I chuckled there because I I, I was meaning to ask you about the chaps. Why chaps? <laughs> Why do you want to ride something that has no protection on your butt? Uh, well, I don't, I don't think about landing on my butt. Actually, it was one of my greatest, uh, pleasures was riding, uh, a Suzuki Bergman scooter back across Labrador, um, wearing my leathers and just, <laughs> just, just for the hell of it. You know, I just, I just love the, uh, the, the way people respond to, um, something that's not ordinary. Mm-hmm. You know, I yeah, I, you can wear your climb suits or, or climb suits and, and ride the latest GS. That's fine. Great. Have fun. Good for you. I, <laughs> I, just, I just do what I do. Mm-hmm. It's what you enjoy and that's all that matters. Yep. And, the, and actually the leather's great stuff. It's very comfortable. 
it doesn't get too hot. Um, it's well padded and well insulating and during the cold. Um, I just like it. Mm-hmm. Certainly good protection, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Nick, thank you very much for sitting down and talking to me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Jim. Thanks very much. Speaking with motorcycle book author Nick Adams from his home in Ontario, Canada. You can find Nick's books on Amazon, and we'll put a link in the show notes for his books on our website, adventureriderradio.com. episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks, of course, to our producer, we never hear, and uh, and yourself as well. Thank you very much for being a part of it by listening to the show. Hey, if you enjoy the show and you get something out of it each week that we do, and the other one that we do each month, Adventure Rider Radio Raw, that's a separate show that comes out every month, if you get something from these shows that we put out, we would really appreciate it if you would consider supporting. It doesn't take much. As a matter of fact, it takes, in my mind, next to nothing. Like think of what you spend, I always say on a coffee, but any of those small expenditures you do, and then think of what you get from them. I mean, think of the money you put out, the value for a coffee, and you get a coffee that lasts for how long, and then what you're getting from the show. I, I think that's a good way to try and put this in perspective, because there are a ton of people that listen to this show every single week. I mean, the downloads are absolutely huge. This show is in the top, I think it's higher than the top 3% of all podcasts, all genres. I'm talking like the most popular podcast. Like we're right up in there with those ones. Yet it's such a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of those people, you that listen, that actually support the show. I don't want to harp on it, but I'm just thinking it's the time of year. Maybe you're, you know, thinking a little bit more about this kind of stuff. It might be the time to drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. I hope you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you so much for listening and I will talk to you next week. Chris Liet of Liet Corporation and you listening to Adventure Rider Radio.